Okay, well, hey, uh, really good to be with you guys tonight. Um, pop quiz, pop quiz. Uh, what book of the Bible are we studying through and Thrive right now? Mark. Mark. Okay, great. Um, pop quiz number two. Um, Mark is one of four of the biographies of Jesus, one of the four Gospels. Anyone uh, can name me the other three? Matthew, Luke, and John. Okay, great, great, great. Man, you guys are Bible students. Uh, you know, I don't even know if I uh, need to share tonight. You guys probably know it all already. Well, hey, uh, so yeah, you're right. We're in the Gospel of Mark. So Mark, one of the four biographies about Jesus. And so um, this is a book that explains who Jesus was, uh, what he did, what he said. If you want to get to know the most influential human being who's ever walked the earth, read this book. Read this book. Uh, and one of the things that we're going to look at tonight is exactly uh, Jesus' influence. Jesus was an incredible influencer, um, and we're going to see that tonight as we look at a story about how Jesus called the 12 disciples. Um, so in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, uh, Jesus' disciples are called those who turned the world upside down. And that was because Jesus took these 12 guys, and most of them, most of them actually were, they were young adults, so like they could have come to thrive. They were, they were our age, if not younger. And he took these guys, he taught them, uh, he empowered them, and then he turned them into a platoon of world changers that, who, they, they had an influence that was so huge that they turned inside out the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. So these, these 12 guys, these 12 disciples that Jesus is going to call in the story that we're looking at today, they were like a civilizational earthquake. I mean, that's how big of an impact they had. And so what I want to look at tonight is the question of how. You know, how did Jesus take these 12 guys and how did he, how, what was his pattern? You know, what was his training regimen? What did he do to take this band of disciples and to make them what they became? And so I want to get into that question tonight by, by looking um, at, at kind of this key strategic question, which is what is a disciple? What is a disciple? Um, that's what Jesus calls these 12 guys to become. Um, what is a disciple? Now, uh, tonight, you might be here, and you might uh, know that you're not a Christian, but you're, you're maybe considering what it might mean to be a Christian. You're maybe wondering uh, what it would actually mean for you to follow Jesus. Our passage will actually answer that question of what it would really mean to follow Jesus. Uh, or you might be here tonight, you already know that you're a Christian, uh, and so for you, tonight's message might be a little bit of a diagnostic, because what we're going to look at tonight is what it looks like to be a disciple. And so you can actually take this teaching and compare it to your own life and say, is that actually how I'm living my own life? Am I actually living my life as a true disciple of Jesus or not? So that's, what we're, that's where we're going to go, uh, looking at this question, what is a disciple? Uh, I'm going to read from our passage tonight, which is Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. So grab a Bible if you've got one. Uh, grab a notebook. It's always a great idea just to kind of jot down notes. Um, and, uh, <laughs> oh boy, this is... Uh, this, this looks a lot bigger than it did on my laptop two hours ago. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read our passage tonight. It'll be up on screen. So this is Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. 
but he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, so uh, here's our passage. I always like to say, if I were Presbyterian, this is the part where you all have to say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. But I'm not Presbyterian, so you guys don't have to say that. But hey, you know, well done to those of you who did. So uh, here, here's our passage. Um, I'm going to pray for us really quickly, and then we're going to dive right in. Father, would you just help us um, know what it means to be a true disciple of you, and help us become true disciples of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So you guys, if you guys have ever like been here when I've spoken, you know that I love to use three-point messages, okay? So I've got three points for you. It makes it easy for all of you note-takers, okay? So uh, this passage is going to explain to us what a disciple is, and it's going to show us that a disciple of Jesus is defined by these three things. Number one, a new mission, a new identity, and a new master. So, so a new mission, a new identity, and a new master, there it is, up on the big screen. Okay, well, hey, first of all, uh, what is the new mission? So uh, the, the, what we just read, the context of the passage actually starts with a gigantic crowd of people. So Jesus has this big old crowd of people. They're all coming to him because they want to be healed. And so that's verses 7 through 12. And then in verses 13 through 19, Jesus calls the 12 apostles. Now, by the way, there, there's a lot of really like juicy nuggets, just interesting little factoids in, in, in what we read. Just one quick, by the way, is that it's pretty remarkable that right as Jesus has this huge amount of fame uh, and, and popularity, you know, normally people would leverage fame and popularity to get more fame and popularity, you know, like... They would, like, go get a book deal or go release an EP or go, like, get a verified check on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Jesus doesn't do any of those things. What he actually does is instead of trying to build a megachurch, he actually builds a microchurch. And he calls out of the crowd a, a tiny little group of 12 guys. So Jesus wasn't interested in being a megachurch pastor. He was, he was content to be a microchurch pastor. And so that's the first remarkable thing. He, he starts small. Uh, he starts small. It means like Jesus, is, he's, he's all about relationship. And then the second remarkable thing is what he calls him to. So, you know, think about this. If you're Jesus and you've got thousands of people that are coming to you to, to, to be ministered to, you know, what are you going to need? You're, you're going to think to yourself, well, I need some support staff. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I need some people to like run security for me. And some people to sell tickets and do crowd control and, you know, catering and that kind of thing. Like, if you're Jesus, you, you would probably be thinking, well, what I really need here is I need some workers. I need workers. But that's not what Jesus calls them to. So look at what he says in verse 14. In verse 14, um, he says that he calls them to two main things. He says that they might be with him and that he might send them out so that they might be with him, and that they might be sent out. So in that order, and let me just kind of unpack this a little bit. Uh, so first of all, kind of our key question, what's a disciple? Well, right here, what this tells you is that a disciple is someone who has been with 
Jesus. A disciple is someone who has been with Jesus. A disciple is not, first and foremost, someone who follows a bunch of rules. A disciple is not, first and foremost, someone who agrees to a list of beliefs. A disciple is someone who has, first and foremost, been with Jesus. Now, now think about that. I'm not saying, of course, that like, there isn't a list of beliefs involved. I'm not saying that there aren't certain ways that God calls us to live. But it's just so striking to me that this is what Jesus says is at the core of discipleship. Now, now imagine here this verse as though it were a Mad Lib. I mean, God could have, like, filled in this verse with any number uh, of words, you know. So, like, actually, I think on the next slide, I've kind of, like, given you a visual here. So, uh, imagine that, like, there's a a little fill-in-the-blank. Show us the uh, next slide there. There it is. Yeah, okay. So, like, Jesus could have filled that blank with any number of words. So, like, he could have said that he uh, he appointed the 12 to be apostles, that they might... Uh, serve him, or that they might work for him, or that they might please him, or they might witness for him, or they might imitate him, or they might speak for him, or they might, you know, evangelize people for him. But the word that he puts in the blank is the word be, that they might be with him. And this is just crazy, because of all the, like, if you were to think of every single verb in the English language, Like, there's not a verb that's more simple than the verb to be. Um, You know, like, think about what goes into being, you know? Like, what do you have to do to be? You don't have to do anything. Like, you, all you have to do is just be. (laughs) And so, Jesus says that this is what he wants from his disciples. A disciple is not defined by, like, how much someone produces or by how much they achieve, or by what they do. A disciple is fundamentally defined by whom they are with. A disciple is someone who is with Jesus. And this is why apprenticeship to Jesus is different than any other religion, any other philosophy, any other way of living. Um, Notice in verse 14, there's the order there again. So there's these two purposes of being a disciple. First, it's to be with Jesus. And then second, it's to be sent out by him. And in every other religion, like in every other way of living, it's always the reverse. So in every other religion, first, in order to get into God's presence, you have to do something. Uh, you have to, to do something to earn your place. You have to kind of, you know, you've got to follow the rules. You've got to make the grade. Christianity says that it's the exact opposite, that no one can make the grade. That if it were all up to just what we do and kind of how much we can contribute, then every single one of us would fail. It's a little bit like trying to swim from here all the way to, like, to Africa. You know, like, some people might be really good swimmers. They can maybe go a couple hundred yards, and then they drown. Maybe someone's, like, an Olympic swimmer. They can go maybe a couple dozen miles, and they drown. No one, no one can swim all the way from the United States to Africa. It's impossible. And in the same way, like, that's exactly what it's like when human beings try to earn their way into God's favor. And so, like, think about it. What could you give God? God already has everything. Like, there's nothing that he could receive from us that would give him more than what he already has. And so instead, Jesus made the grade for you. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. And so that means that we can be in God's presence because Jesus died in our place to make it possible And that's then the basis that gives us the power to be sent out by him to live lives of truth and lives of goodness for Jesus' sake. 
So do you see how that's different? Like, that's different than the way that it works in every other way of living, every other religion, every other philosophy. And let me just give you one other way that Jesus explained it. So I'm going to put up on the, verse, uh, the screen here a verse from uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, this is when Jesus is talking to his disciples right before he's about to die. And he says uh, in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's not just saying like you can do some things and then God can kind of help you out and do the rest. So he says, no, like apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. So Jesus uses the word remain, or sometimes it says abide, other translations, and that's a being word. You know, it's a word that's all about just being. Um, like a branch, um, how does a branch remain in the vine? It, does, it doesn't like clench its fists and, and grit its teeth and try really hard to be a branch. All it does is it simply is a branch. And so Jesus actually says here that the very thing that he's calling us to do, we're called to do because that's exactly what he did. So the very last part of this, he says, remain in my love just as I've obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. So like it's easy to look at Jesus and to see all the things he did, all the miracles he accomplished and to think the way that Jesus did that was just by being Jesus. You know, he just like snapped his fingers and did all kinds of powerful, amazing Jesus things. But what Jesus says here and what he says all throughout the rest of of the Bible is that he did what he did because he remained in his father's love. And that he actually modeled a way of life that was defined by being before doing. Being before doing. And so that means that the mission of a disciple is totally unique. That disciples of Jesus are called to serve God, are called to please God, are called to share the gospel, are called to care the sick, care for the sick, clothe the naked, you know, feed the hungry, all those things. But, you know, that's, that's kind of what that second part means about being sent out, but all of those good works arise out of being with Jesus, out of spending time with him, out of knowing him. And that actually is what then kind of feeds into this second point. Um, there's a new mission which leads to a new identity. Um, now, this is, my, this is my favorite part of the message tonight. I don't know if as the person who, like, put the message together, if I'm allowed to have favorite parts. I don't know. I think uh, hopefully you guys can give me a pass on that. <laughs> but but I want to I I dwell on this for a little bit here. There's a new identity that goes with the new mission. Um, so just to kind of see where this is in the text, look at verse 16. You get this big long list of all the names of the 12 apostles. You know, there's Simon, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. And uh, notice that Jesus actually gives some of the new names. So to Simon, he gives the name Peter. Anyone know what the name Peter means, by the way? Yeah, right. So Peter means rock. And uh, Jesus would later say about Peter that it was on, 
on, on Peter's confession of faith that he would build his church and that Peter would kind of get to play the role of, of, of sort of helping establish the rock that the church was built on. And then uh, next verse, James and John, they also get a nickname. So these guys are brothers, and they get this name uh, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now, uh, you know, I think it's kind of clever of Jesus because these guys, from what we can tell, they were kind of hotheads. You know, so you might remember there's one part where uh, Jesus is passing through a village and they don't believe in him. And, and James and John say, hey, Jesus, should we like call fire down from heaven to burn these guys up? And Jesus says, you guys don't get it. <laughs> and so he gives them this nickname. You know, he kind of had insight into, into just what made these guys tick. And just kind of another little, little interesting detail here. Kind of notice that Peter grows into his name as time goes on. You know, he becomes, he goes from kind of being this foot in his mouth, uh, you know, kind of clumsy, uh, not very wise, uh, rough around the edges fisherman, to actually becoming uh, this wise, um, gentle, um, solid um, pastor of God's church. So he kind of grows into his name as Rock. And then James and John actually kind of grow away from their name. You know, like John goes on to write, um, like, all of these uh, letters, First John. And he's actually been called the apostle of love. Like, if you read John's writings, like, he, you know, his writings just ooze with, like, the love and the goodness and the grace of God. So very different than kind of this thunderous, uh, you know, hothead personality that he had uh, back when, when Jesus was first getting to know him. So kind of interesting that, that Jesus is able to see the potential of what someone can become, kind of like with Peter, but then he's also able to assess kind of uh, just where we're really at right now. He's both a realist and an idealist, and he's able to perfectly shepherd each of us from where we are to where we ought to be. Pretty cool. The point, though, is that Jesus gives these guys who follow him, he gives some of them new names. And, and this is sort of a pointer to what Jesus does to every single person who follows him, whether in the first century or in the 21st century. And that's that he gives us a, a new name, a new identity. Um, not like, a, like an actual name, like not the name on your driver's license, but a new, like a new um, identity, a new way of understanding who you are in light of Jesus. And this goes back to, to, to just this whole difference between being and doing. Being first, which then feeds into to doing second. Um, and if you were at Thrive Kids Up on, on um, Monday, I guess it was when I spoke, I guess a week and a half ago, you might remember there was, there was an illustration I used, which I'm going to use again tonight, that to kind of describe this contrast in a little bit more detail, um, here's an example that I think has been really helpful for me. So, so back in ancient times, if a king was going off to war, what would happen if the king lost the battle is that there would be messengers that would be sent out to all of the king's subjects, and they would be told that the king had lost the battle. And so all the people would have been totally panicked because they knew that they only had a matter of minutes before the enemy army was going to come and sweep in and completely slaughter them all. And so that was a message that led to fear and to anxiety. But if the king won the battle, then there would be messengers that would be sent out, and they would be, they, they would be sent to announce good news, that the king had won the victory, and that therefore the people didn't have to defend themselves. They didn't have to fight for themselves because the king had already won the battle. So just think about that contrast. One message brings fear and anxiety. Another message brings joy and peace. And this is the difference between an identity that's formed by the gospel 
versus an identity that's been formed by just what you might call religion. So what I want to show you here is just a breakdown of how this can affect every, every area of life. Um, I've just got a couple of slides on the screen. I just want to walk through some of these um, and just show you, the, show you the difference. So on the left-hand side, this is like an identity that's based on doing first, that just tries to, to, to do things for God in your own strength, versus on the other side, this is what you might call a being-first identity that focuses on being with Jesus, and then out of that, flows everything else. So, uh, or another way to put that, the left-hand side, this is like what religion tells you. And when I mean religion, I'm just talking about like kind of the ways that we traditionally as human beings imagine God to be like. But then the gospel on the right-hand side, this is what the Bible says about who God really is and it's totally opposite, totally different from how we're naturally hardwired to think of God. So, what's the foundational truth for each of these? Well, for... The one on the left, kind of the religion model, salvation is earned based on what you do, okay? But then the gospel says salvation is a free gift based on what God has done for you. So there's kind of the foundation, okay? And now just watch as this affects absolutely everything about um, our identity. Okay, so next slide here. So let's just think about your relationship with God. Religion would say that I always have to be uncertain about my right standing before God because I never know if I have done enough to please God. And just like in that story, the result is going to be fear and anxiousness and God becomes someone that you're ultimately afraid of. But then on the other side, what does the gospel say? The gospel says that because of what Jesus has already done for you, that you can have a deep sense of assurance and peace about your right standing with God because he's already paid it all. Let's do another one here. So this, uh, think, think about obedience. So, you know, if you're a Christian here tonight, you probably know that we're supposed to obey God and do what he says. I mean, that's kind of what it means for him to be God. But typically, like, when you hear that word obedience, it's kind of easy to cringe and think, obey? Like, that sounds not fun. But actually, look at, look at, look at, look at how this just is different depending on which paradigm you're looking at it through. So religion says, I begrudgingly obey God because I have to earn his acceptance. I resent God. But then the gospel says, I actually can gladly obey God because I'm so overjoyed at how good he's been to me. And anything I do to obey him is actually a response of gratitude and love for what he's done for me. Okay, next one. Here's a view of ourselves. So religion would say that your view of yourself is always going to be shaky and unsteady because it's based on just how well you're doing at any particular moment. So that means that if you're having a really, really good day, you know, you're going to feel um, pretty confident. You, know, you might even become prideful. But if you're doing really badly, you're going to feel like you're a failure. So your identity is always going to be unstable. You're never going to actually feel like there's like any kind of stability in your life. But the gospel gives you a grounded and a stable identity that's a healthy one because it's based not on what you've done, but on what Jesus has always, already done for you. And that can never change. Uh, what about your view of others? Well, so the gospel affects this too. Religion says that because your identity is based on what you accomplish and how much of a moral person you are, 
that leads you then to judge other people. So for people who are worse than you, you kind of look down on them so that you can feel better about yourself. And you might look with other people, look at other people who are better than you with sort of like a jealousy. And so you're, you're always going to be either putting people down or you're going to feel put down by other people. But in the gospel, your identity is based on what Jesus has accomplished for you. And you don't even have to worry about seeing yourself as a good person because you've already been made good in Jesus. And you can be set free from trying to judge other people or trying to one-up other people because you know it's not about comparing yourself. It's not about comparing yourself to yourself or yourself to someone else. It's about what Jesus has done for you. How does this affect how other people see you? Well, so, you know, I don't know about you. I think uh, one of the hardest things about life is you're always kind of wondering, what do other people think about me? It's been said that, you know, if we actually kind of paused and and realized that a lot of people actually don't think about you as much as you might think they do. (laughs) Anyway, the religion religion paradigm says that because your identity is based on kind of what you do, you're going to be insecure about how other people see you. You're going to be obsessed with curating your own image. You're going to try to control how other people react to you. But the gospel says that all that matters is how God sees you. The only eyes in the universe that count have looked on you and have loved you. And that means that you're free to be yourself and to not be bent out of shape about what people think of you. I think there's a couple more here. And I just want to walk through... um, Actually, a bunch of these, just because it just is so incredible how this touches every single area of life. So next slide. Oh, this is interesting. This is life in community. So um, if you're living according to religion, this means that in community, you're going to have a hard time trusting other people. Because there's going to be this constant fear that they're not going to accept you for who you are because of what you've done. And this, we're gonna, this will lead either to you constantly undersharing and never actually letting anyone into what your life is really like, or to overshare and to actually like share too much because you're trying to use sharing your problems to gain an external sense of affirmation without proper boundaries. But in the gospel, our acceptance is based on what Jesus has done for us. And this actually gives the ability to be vulnerable with a trustworthy circle of friends and to let them into your struggles, to allow them to point you back to the Savior who can meet your deepest needs. Let's do another one. Okay, this is relevant for all of us. So, so work. Um, how do you approach life on the job? Well, the religion paradigm would actually encourage things like overwork. Um, I don't know if this is something that's true of you. It's definitely true of me. That I find that like when I'm acting kind of a, the, the religious way, um, I, I'll sometimes overwork. I'll try to I actually do this. I'll bring up how busy I am when I'm talking to other people because I want them to think that I'm this like really important person who's always busy all the time. You know, I'm just doing so much stuff. And I have a really hard time resting because if I'm not producing something, if I'm not being productive, I feel like I'm not good enough. But then in the gospel... It's not that you don't work hard, you know, hard work is good, but you're not a slave to your work. You know, you don't, you, you don't have to constantly be doing something in order to feel good about yourself. Work is just a way to glorify God, it's a good gift from Him. And you can rest deeply and rest well because you know that your identity is not based on how much you're doing. I think there's one or two more here. This is relevant for those of us who are serving in ministry in some kind. 
So uh, it's really tempting to just make ministry something that's a burden. Um, You're doing it out of a desire to make yourself look good um, or to try to impress God or impress other people. And in that case, ministry is actually a place of self-actualization. You're not serving other people because you love them or because you love God, but you're actually doing it to serve you. Um, There's an old story, I'll just share this really quick, that uh, an old preacher named Charles Spurgeon once told. And uh, he told a story about a a young, uh, a a king who had a kingdom and he had a peasant um, who was in his kingdom who one day brought him the biggest carrot that he had ever grown in his garden. And the peasant came to the king and said, oh king, I love you so much that I've decided to give you the biggest carrot I've ever grown in my whole garden. And the king saw the man's heart and he said, thank you. Um, In exchange for this carrot, I'd like to give you one of the finest patches of land in my garden so that you can grow your crops in my, my royal garden. And the man went away rejoicing. Well, then a nobleman was standing nearby. He saw this whole thing happen, and he thought to himself, a whole acre of land for a carrot? And so he kind of does some scheming, and he he grabs his very best war horse. And he comes to the king, and he says, oh, king, I love you so much that out of my great love for you, I've decided to give you my best war horse. And the king takes the horse. he, He sees the man's heart, and he says, thank you. And then... He dismisses him. And the nobleman gets all upset. He says, well, wait a minute. Like, you gave him all of this for a carrot. Like, surely I should get something even bigger for this horse. And the king replies. He says, well, he gave me the carrot, but you gave you the horse. He gave me the carrot, but you gave you the horse. Sometimes that is how ministry can be if you're operating according to the paradigm of religion. But according to the gospel... Ministry can be a joy. It's not to prove yourself. Instead, it's just an overflow of of just joy and love that you've received in Jesus that you want to share with other people. And then just one final one. Um, This is kind of a unique one. Trusting God when things don't make sense. Um, I'm sure everyone's kind of had moments like these. Um, And and the, the paradigm you're in will affect this. So religion, when God allows pain and confusion into my life, I lose all hope. I fear that he is punishing me, so I pull away from him in rage or despair, or I try to take over control from God. But if the gospel is true, then that means that when God allows pain and confusion into my life, I can be deeply hurt, but not crushed. Because I know Jesus laid down his life for me, and I know that somehow, even though I might feel like I lose my grip on him, he will never lose his grip on me, and he invites me to take my grief to him. So, do you see the difference? One way is to live in a way that focuses on doing first. Another way is to focus on being first. Or to, you know, or to focus on the gospel. And you might be looking at all of this and you might be thinking, wow, this is a really big contrast. And if you're anything like me, you probably kind of feel like you're straddling both of these columns. Like, you know, you've got one foot sometimes in the religion column, one foot in the gospel column. And so what I want to do to conclude tonight, as we look at this question of what a true disciple really is, um, is is notice one final detail in this story. And this is that a disciple is not just someone who has a new mission, not just someone who has a new identity, but actually has a whole different kind of master. Um, You you might be kind of thinking, how on earth do I I actually kind of switch from kind of the left column to the right column? 
Um, and I'm going to just point out a little clue here to this, which is found in verse 13. So in verse 13, we read that when Jesus called the disciples, he did this from a mountainside. Now, you know, you don't want to build a theology around this, but I just think it's so fascinating that discipleship begins with Jesus on a mountainside. Fast forward to the end of Jesus' life. And then another significant event happened on a mountainside. When Jesus climbed the hill of Calvary and died on a cross for your sins and for mine. And this, therefore, is a pointer to the fact that all of those things about like an identity that's rooted in the gospel, that is not a task list. That is not just one more big long list of things that we're supposed to put over our heads and say, oh man, just one more set of things to do. Instead, if it really is true that Jesus climbed a mountain and died for our sake, then that means that our new identity as disciples of Jesus is not something that we achieve. It's actually something that we receive. Jesus paid it all so that we could be set free from striving, so that we could be set free from trying to earn our way into God's favor. And so all of these things are not things that we have to like, grit our teeth, clench our fists, and simply try harder to achieve. They're things that Jesus has already purchased for us and that, therefore, we simply can receive. And so tonight, as we've looked at this, this message, just the, the markers of what discipleship looks like, um, there's a lot more to it than just this, and if we go through the rest of Mark's gospel, I think you'll see Jesus has other things about discipleship. He talks about coming and dying. He talks about the cost of discipleship. But I wanted to start here because the only way um, to, to do all the rest of the things that discipleship involves is to begin with this, with an identity that's not something we earn, not something we achieve, but something that we receive because of what Jesus has done for us. That is the gospel, and that's really, really good news. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay, so I'm going to pray for us, um, and then we're going to have some time to digest this in small groups. Father, thank you for this word. Um, I pray that you would just convict us of ways that um, instead of receiving from you this amazing gift, we've still been trying to strive and prove ourselves in our own strength, living according to religion instead of the gospel. Um, Father, just as we um, get to sing this song um, as we close here and move into small groups, um, would you just meet us? Would you just show us that you want to give us Um, not the heavy yoke, but the easy yoke of Jesus um, that rests in what you've done for us rather than what we would have to do to earn your acceptance and forgiveness. And I pray this in your name. Amen.